I'm Nick Crawford. I'm the community group's pastor here. We're continuing along in this sermon series that we've called Questions Jesus Asked. Two weeks ago, Daniel did a masterful job teaching us on servanthood. Last week, RG knocked it out of the park on forgiveness. This week, I get the impossible job of following those two up and, ironically enough, address the topic of fear, as if it's not scary enough to follow those two guys. The question of the day is, what are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? We'll be answering it by looking at a very familiar passage today, Jesus calming the storm. And at the outset, I just want to tell you, this passage does not promise Jesus to calm every storm of your life or fix every problem of your life. This passage promises to cure you of your unbelief in the midst of the storm. Church, it's not the absence of the storm that defines the Christian. That's not what sets us apart. What defines us and what sets us apart is who we find in the midst of it. What are you so afraid of? Whatever it is you're afraid of, I can tell you, says a lot about who you believe Jesus to be. We're in Mark chapter 4, verses 35 to 41. Let's put it up. You can turn there if you want, page 839 of the black Bible that's sitting in front of you in the pew. While you turn there, I'll set it up with a little bit of light background. This story, Jesus calling the storm, is told in three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And the focal point of the passage is not the storm. Surprise, surprise, it's Jesus. In fact, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all agree that Jesus performed this miracle to address the most fundamental question to the Christian faith. Who is this man? We're in Mark's account. Mark writes with a very fast-paced, dramatic writing style to pull us into the life of Jesus. He cuts to the chase. He jumps right into the action, focusing almost exclusively on Jesus' public ministry and the saving impact that he had on others. He does this to face his readers with the question, who is Jesus? Mark writes this entire gospel to show us that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior. And the Savior is very concerned with your fears. In fact, the gospels record Jesus issuing well over 100 direct commands. Of these, 21 are directed at fear. They look like this. Don't be afraid. Don't fear, have courage, take heart, be of good cheer. You know what the second most used commandment is by Jesus? It's the great one. Love God, love your neighbor, only eight times. Jesus is clearly concerned with your fears. So what are you afraid of? Let's read the passage together. On that day when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm, there it is, a great windstorm arose. And the waves were breaking into the boat, so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they awoke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. He said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Let's pray. 
Father, you promised that where two or more are gathered in your name, there you are. I pray that you would open our hearts and our minds today. Let us see you for who you really are, that you own the storm, that you have power over it, that you care deeply for us, even as you lead us out into open water. Amen. What are you afraid of? Think about it. It's a penetrating question. It cuts to the, it cuts to the quick. It, it, it probes at the place in which you rest your faith. But fear can be good, you know, after all God did design it. On the one hand, it can protect us. You know the stovetop is hot. You fear getting burned so you don't touch it. And if you're in my shoes, you try to strike the fear of God in your two-year-old who desperately wants to learn that lesson out by himself. But like everything else, fear has been distorted. It does not function as it was intended. It can take us beyond our trust in the Lord, paralyzing us and even enslaving us to the monsters that we create in our minds. You see, we tend to be most afraid of what we either can't understand or can't control. So fear is connected to belief. It's not about what's happening right now. It's about what you believe will happen. Fear is connected to the future. But the same God with the power over nature is the same God who's got your future in the palm of his hands. And so our fears expose us. They reveal something wrong with all of us that needs fixing. We're all scared of something. We're all sick. We're all plagued with the same disease that's infected every human being since the beginning, since Adam. Unbelief. Think about it. What are we really doing when we fear the things of the world? What are we really doing? What we're saying when we fear these things is that Jesus is not enough, that he's not strong enough to save us from them. Now, unbelief can look a little different from person to person. Maybe you don't believe that the creator of heaven and earth is in control of your finances, your parenting, your addiction, your failure, your job, whatever. All of this is rooted at some degree in unbelief about the Savior. Jesus wants to change that. He wants to take you from unbelief to belief in every aspect of your life. He wants to complete you. He wants to prove to you that his grace really is sufficient, that he is in control of the storm. Do you believe it? To answer that question, just ask yourself, what is it that I am so afraid of? Church, I can tell you that whatever it is that you're afraid of, that's the very area that Jesus wants to go to work in your life. Jesus is in control of every storm. You have no reason to fear. In the midst of the storm, Jesus Jesus gives us three life lessons on fear. Here they are. Jesus leads you to face your fears. Jesus is in control of your fears. And Jesus forms your faith in the midst of your fears. Here we go. Jesus leads you to face your fears. He leads you to the storm so that you'll hold on to him as the only way through. Look at verse 35. On that day, when evening had come, he said to them, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took him with them in the boat just as he was. And other boats were with him. And a great windstorm arose, and the waves were breaking into the boat so that the boat was already filling. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. 
Church, there's a plan in play here. Jesus led his disciples to the storm, and he fell asleep. And he did both on purpose. Look, Jesus took the initiative. That's what leaders do, right? They take the initiative. He decided to cross over to the Sea of Galilee. He commanded the disciples. He said, let's go to the other side. Jesus deliberately led them directly into the storm. Look, the Sea of Galilee, that's where this takes place. It's about 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by hills on all sides. It's about 13 miles long, 7 miles wide. It's about the size of the res. It's a volatile lake, too, known for sudden storms that pop up with very little warning as the hills around it can conceal the horizon. Winds can gain speed across the flat, treeless desert. And at nighttime, this little lake becomes especially dangerous. You see, the thinner, hotter air of the day turns cool and heavy at night, and it falls, accelerating down those hills, and it can churn the waters below often into massive 20-foot waves. That is where Jesus was leading his disciples into the Sea of Galilee and at nighttime. And surprise, surprise, a storm popped up. Now, Matthew uses a different word to describe the storm in his gospel. He calls it a seismos, a quake. That's appropriate because that's exactly what the disciples did. They quaked in fear. Now, let's look at the guys in the boat. There were a few professional fishermen in the boat, experts who knew the Sea of Galilee like the backs of their hands. They made their living on this lake, so they knew what to do in the midst of a storm. The first thing that a seasoned fishermen would do in the storm would be to take down the sails. This would make the boat easier to control. But it's interesting to me that this detail is not featured in any of the three Gospels, not even in Luke's account, and Luke was meticulous with the details. Now, here's what I think. I don't know this. It's not in Scripture, but here's what I think. I think they froze in fear. Panic set in. They lost control of the boat, and they couldn't do a thing. They couldn't even rely on their own experience. The storm was too great for them, and they believed the storm to be more powerful than their Savior. And what was he doing? He was asleep in the stern of the boat. He was tired. Sure, he'd been preaching all day. He needed a break. He was human, after all, but he was also God, as this story so clearly reveals. Jesus knew the storm was coming, and he was asleep. Now, this was a typical Galilean fishing boat. It's about four and a half feet deep. This podium is about that tall. All right, give or take six to ten inches of a lip of the boat. Stay with me on this. Now, the fishermen of the day, they used large, heavy nets to catch their fish, and they stored these nets in a little nook that they built into the stern of the boat. Okay, again, four and a half feet deep, about here. Four to ten inches for a lip of the boat, another four to six inches for a decking that they built on top of the stern. Okay, you're left with about three feet to three and a half feet. So picture this. Jesus had to stoop down low to get into the stern. He wanted this nap. He had to try to access the stern. He planned this nap. Church, this was premeditated slumber with full knowledge of a storm to come. That's what he's doing. He took them into open water and he fell asleep. So they'd have to face the storm 
on their own. But the disciples were so focused on their circumstances that they lost sight of the future and say they failed to recognize the man who had it in the palm of his hands. There was a phenomenon that occurred in World War II. It manifested itself often in the most intense and extreme combat settings. As, so, as many soldiers would go to great lengths to find souvenirs on the battlefield. They'd run out into the field exposing their position and inviting enemy gunfire just so that they could get the soldier's uniform, his flag, his weapon, his watch, whatever. Now, all these soldiers feared dying. But even though they faced death every day on the battlefield, they never really got used to the feeling. They were stuck in the present as bombs cascaded all around them. They couldn't trust their past survivals. They couldn't find security in the future because the security of the future didn't exist to them. They were stuck in the present. All that mattered to them was living to the next minute. Their souls yearned for a tangible reminder that salvation was actually possible to them. So they risked it, and they went after their little souvenirs. Why? Why would they do such a thing? It wasn't about the souvenir. It was never about the souvenir. It's about what the souvenir represented, the future you see, the souvenir represented a promise that the soldier could go home one day, that he might could enjoy his treasure in the comfort of his home in the future. And so the souvenir became a way for them to endure the storm of combat. They needed something to hold on to to give them some sort of hope for the future. What do you hold on to? Things you can control? or the one who's in control of all. Storms will come. We know this. Most of us are facing them right now. And it's what you choose to hold on to that reveals whether or not you have the power to make it through. But just like the disciples, fear can blind us. Our own sin can prevent us from recognizing who the Savior really is. This is unbelief. When we're faced with a storm with some fear, we panic. We like to turn inward. We try to work in the strength of our own hands so we reach out for things that we can manage. Because at its core, fear is really the perceived loss of control. And that's when fear's got you. Because that's when it starts dictating your behavior. You run from it. You work against it in the strength of your own hands. And what happens? You get sick. The drugs, the alcohol, they take their toll. You withdraw to the point where you cannot experience the abundant life of community. Your dieting and your image protection turns you into a new person entirely. And your angry outbursts leave a destructive wake behind you. When we resort to this sort of behavior, we remove God as the solution. And our problems only get worse. But when we see Jesus as he truly is, as the Messiah, the Savior, we learn that he controls both the storms of nature and the storms of our hearts. He leads you to face your fears so that your fears will no longer master you. Jesus came for this reason. It's why he was in the boat that day. It's why he came, died, and rose again to give us confidence of the salvation that he offers us on a daily basis. 
Church, until we get past our fear, we can't fully identify with the Savior and all that he's done for you. So what are you so afraid of? Is he enough for you in the storm? When you face your fears, you can have confidence because the Savior led you to them. Secondly, Jesus is in control of your fears. In the midst of the storm, Jesus demonstrates his power over what we cannot control. Look at verse 38. And they woke him, said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we're perishing? And he awoke and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Peace, be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. Look at where the disciples went. Where'd they go? They went to Jesus. This is why he led them to the storm and seemingly let them face it on their own. He stretched them because he knew that when they faced their fear, it would be too great for them and they'd have to look for help outside of themselves. But they did. They turned to him in fear. They failed to trust him. Look at what they asked him. Don't you care? We're dying in this boat. We're dying. Can you hear the fear in their voices? It reveals two things to us. Two things that Jesus wants to fix. A failure to trust his work. They'd already seen him heal all kinds of sickness and cure diseases. That He already cured a leper, and he'd cast out some evil spirits by this time. But they were doubting in the storm. They failed to trust his ability to save them. He also wants to fix a failure to trust his word. Recall this command in verse 35. Jesus said he was going to the other side. And in that moment, they didn't think he could make it. In the storm, they forgot his work and they forgot his word. They let the voice of the storm silence the voice of the Lord. They couldn't believe him, so they let their fear come between them and salvation. And then what happened? What happened next? He calmed the storm. Jesus calmed the storm. Right when they were at the brink, ready to give up all hope, Jesus showed them who he really is. In the Old Testament... It was only God who could calm the wind and the sea. And Jesus does it right here in three words. He says, peace, be still. This is a commandment. A commandment with a response. Nature responded to him. Nature pulled back from the power of our Savior. And what happened? A great calm ensued. Now these fishermen, they've been through some storms before, right? The conclusion of this one was a little bit different than the rest of them that they'd ever been through. You see, when a storm comes and goes, the waters below continue to churn for a little while. But right here, we got a great storm, absolute, a great calm, absolutely and immediately. When Jesus pulled the disciples through the storm, there was not even a remnant remaining of their fears. Church, Jesus can calm the, storm, the storms of your heart forever. Today, tomorrow, and every day in the future. My son, man, he's a rough and tough little guy. Two years old, wild curly hair. Probably gets that from me. Although he's rough and tough, he's still kind of a mama's boy. Actually, he's, he's really a mama's boy. There are times when she leaves the room that he absolutely loses it. Doesn't matter who's in the room with him either. If she's not in the room, he's got a problem. I remember one time in particular. Coy was about nine months old. We were going to the store around bedtime. That was mistake number one. 
it was one of those quick run-in, run-out trips. We need to get like one or two things. And I was driving. That's mistake number two. Because that meant Mama had to go in and make the run. And when she did, my little boy lost it. You see, when Mommy left him, he didn't think she was coming back. He felt separated. And it tore him up. Now, sure, I tried everything in the book. Funny faces, jokes. I even crawled back in the back seat, tried to bribe him with some food. I tried to wait the storm out. Mistake number three. All these things just made it worse. Nothing was working. So as a last-ditch effort, I did what I never do. I sang. I sang him a lullaby. The only one I know. Three Little Birds by Bob Marley. Go something like this, though. Don't worry about a thing, because every little thing is going to be all right. Miraculously, the little nine-month-old stopped crying, and he stared up at his daddy and just looked at me calmly. So I was hot, man. I kept on singing. Coy's going to be two next Saturday, and guess where I go when he melts down today? Back to those same three little birds. I've wondered why that song works and all the others don't. And here's what I think. I think that when little Coy hears the voice of his father telling him that every little thing is going to be all right, that he believes it, even when things don't seem to be going his way. Do you really believe that everything's okay? That Jesus is in control? What about in the storm? Do you doubt there? We can wonder if God is even aware of our problems. We allow our faith to be removed from the anchor of the cross, and we allow our fears to toss us around. The real work, though, that he did for you at the cross, it doesn't change when you head out to open waters. Don't forget what he's done for you. Fear can also destroy our confidence in the goodness of God's promises. Guess what? Romans 8, 28, you know it. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. It's the same exact promise in the safety of the docks as it is in the chaos of the storm. And you can believe it in both places. When you face the storms of your life, you really have two options. You can go along wondering if God really hears you and if he really cares. Or you can resist fear by remembering Jesus' work and his word. Church, stop drowning in unbelief. Stop doubting his word and devaluing his work. He died to save you. Just turn to him and trust him. When we cry out to God, help, don't you care? God doesn't just hear you. He sends his son to ride in the boat with you. In the midst of the storm and in the face of your fears, Jesus is right there with you saying, I'm in control and every little thing is going to be okay. Lastly, Jesus forms your faith in the midst of the storm. He wants to take you from fear to faith in the middle of the storm. Look at verse 40. And Jesus said to them, Why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great fear and said to one another, Who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? There are two words I want to focus on here. Afraid in verse 40 and fear in verse 41. There are two very similar words, but the context of the passage reveals two very different meanings. 
afraid. The word Mark uses there is, it means fearful, timid, and faithless. Notice that this is exactly what Jesus rebukes them for. He rebuked them for being afraid, for being faithless, for fearing the lesser power of the storm over the greater power of the Savior. Look, Jesus had just taught them on the parable of the mustard seed. He did it from the pulpit of the boat that they're in right now. And he said that it's really just the smallest amount of faith imaginable that's really all you need. Church, it's never a question about the size of one's faith. It's always a question about unbelief. Faithlessness. If faith is real, quantity is really irrelevant. And real faith demonstrates itself by turning to the Savior in the midst of the storm. This is the reason Jesus calmed it. To cure their unbelief. That's why he asked them, do you still have no faith? Now don't miss this. Jesus was taking his disciples somewhere in that boat that day. But the physical destination that they set off for was not the intended destination. When Jesus commanded them to go to the other side, he was taking them a lot farther from the seven-mile stretch from the west bank to the east bank of the Sea of Galilee. He was taking them to a new place entirely, a spiritual place from unbelief to belief. Here we go. Fear. The word Mark uses there also means reverence and to be in awe of. The disciples had just had an epiphany. We call it an aha moment. They just witnessed Jesus' authority over the greatest powers of nature. Like men in a storm who see the world momentarily illuminated by lightning, these men were finally able to see Jesus who, for who he really is. Their fears had been transformed to faith in these little moments. Look at this new fear. It was different. It wasn't oppressive. It didn't freeze them. This fear opened up a universe of new possibilities for them. This new fear showed them that the one who led them to the place where they didn't have control was the one who was actually in control over that which they could not control. And they responded in awe and wonder. Church, Jesus took a small group of believers and he challenged them to trust him more. He led them straight to the storm to show them who he really is, that he's strong enough to save them. And they knew that if they could just answer the one question, who is this, that they could have an anchor in all the storms to come. Drew and Allie Mellon, they lead a community group here at Fondren Church. Their group has been together for a while, too, I think from the beginning. They've grown way past that form-up and warm-up, that hi, how you doing, get-to-know-you stage. And they've, for a while, they've been struggling with um, the desire to experience deeper and more meaningful community. But they've gotten busier. Babies, promotions, transitions have made this really hard for them. And they've come to the realization that if they're going to grow deeper with one another and with God, that something has got to change. And they're figuring out how. They're doing group a little differently right now. It's not easy. It's requiring something of them, and they're still figuring out how to do it. But in the midst of this difficulty, I'm hearing some really good things. You see, one of the very first things that they've done is to 
pick out one thing that each individual needs Jesus to change. Stuff like attitudes and actions, but specific stuff. They've picked one thing, one fragment of unbelief, and they've submitted, to, submitted it to the lordship of Jesus Christ in a group. And as they've done this, committed and invested in the lives of one another, I'm hearing real stories of celebration. I'm hearing group members tell me that, Nick, this has literally turned into the best group that I've ever been in. This experience has changed my, my life. Nick, the gospel is helping me deal with my anger. Real, noticeable change is taking place in this group. Drew and Allie's group has entered the storm that every group eventually goes through, the desire to grow deeper with God and deeper with one another, and they're facing it by pursuing Christ together in the midst of it. Church, we can't change the storm, but we can embrace it by trusting in Jesus. And when we do, he grows us into more mature disciples. That's what he did with the disciples in the boat that day. Jesus is not okay with you staying where you are in your spiritual walk with him. He wants you to grow. He wants, you to, take, he wants to take you somewhere. He wants to take you to be more like him. It's not going to be easy either. The storms will come. They'll knock you to your knees and they'll strengthen your grip. That's what storms are for. But trusting in Jesus is what marks the heart of the disciple. It's not the absence of storms. That is the first step of growing up into Christ. So how are you doing? The disciples were in that boat together with Jesus, and they grew to trust him together. Look, every test and every trial is an opportunity for you to see Jesus and discover his power in your life. So maybe you've been facing the storms of life all alone for a while. Maybe you need to hop in the boat with a community of believers and face them together. He's with you, and he means for you to grow together in him and with some others. So ask yourself, who is Jesus? And do I trust him even in the storm? He wants to form your faith in the storm. So turn to Jesus, lock arms with some brothers and sisters in Christ, and face your storms with some others. What's your storm? What sort of internal unrest are you struggling with right now? What are you afraid of? Maybe it's failure, finances, addiction, loneliness, a test, a question. Maybe it's the shame of your past. Maybe it's not mattering or disappointing someone else. Maybe you're afraid of what's coming next. Or maybe it's just plain apathy. You've lost a certain passion and you don't know what to do. There's a promise today, church. And we know that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So here's the truth. Are you ready for it? Perfect love casts out fear. And God showed his love for us in that while we sinned, Christ died. So who is Jesus to you? Who is this man? Can you trust him in the midst of your storm? What if you could? What if you did? If you would let go of the illusion of control, Jesus will take control. He'll show you that he's enough for your money problems, your addictions, your pain, your parenting. He's enough for all of your fears. This is the man you can trust enough to fear because he's already conquered everything that there is to fear. And he's still present in the world. He's right in the boat with you. So the next time you face a storm, 
Turn to the Savior and let Him turn your fears into faith. Let Him change your unbelief to belief in every aspect of your life. Let's pray.